Well, hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I'm glad that you've joined me for this episode. I'm super excited about this episode and the guest that I have with me, a longtime uh, friend and, uh, you know, just really has blessed my life and my family's life with the work that she's doing, uh, none other than Deanna McLeod. And uh, I just want you guys to, to get to hear a little bit of what she has to say, some of her expertise on a very important topic which uh, we may not be able to post this whole episode on YouTube, but we'll post the whole thing on Rumble. So make sure that you get it there if, um, if we have to cut it off here. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. So, Deanna, how about you tell the, the folks who are listening a little bit about yourself, maybe about your background? Uh, some of your qualifications and why you think that the most important thing to understand in all of this is that pineapple belongs on pizza. Because <laughs> that's exactly what you told me we should talk about is is making oh, pizza yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's all this episode is. It's, it's a very that's innocent right. episode. <laughs> exactly. And that's why we're going to be highly censored. I'm 100% sure that's it. Right exactly. There. Yeah. Those YouTube um, censors do not like pineapple on, on pizza. That's why you can't trust No, them. exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Thad, thanks for having me on um, your show. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and your audience, first of all. So um, my name is Deanna McLeod, and I'm the principal of a medical research firm called Kaleidoscope Strategic. And our firm specializes in doing literature reviews as in summarizing that data. Um, and we work with uh, the leading cancer specialists across Canada. Um, my company has been uh, doing reviews, systematic reviews, guidelines, and, and supporting doctors and doing those for almost 25 years now. So it's been a long time. Uh, we've read a lot of studies and we've published a lot of studies. So our firm's actually about to publish its 50th uh, systematic review. And wow, so that's yep, so a, that's a peer exactly. Yeah. That's a peer-reviewed publication. All of them are peer-reviewed publications. Um, and so in, in each one of those reviews, we'd probably have to, you know, evaluate and critically review about 25, anywhere between five and 25 studies in depth. Uh, and we do that with the top doctors, you know, talk specialists in cancer. So that would be somebody who's done their, you know, undergrad and then, you know, gone and done medicine and then done a fellowship and then has probably done, you know, a few more years. We're lo looking at about people who've been in school for 10 years post-grad. So, you know, really smart people. And so we yeah. kind of work with them and we evaluate them. So we, they, we've been trained by them. And just to, to kind of give some context in terms of, you know, the type of studies and the type of evaluations we do, I'm a Cochrane author. So that's like evidence-based review. So if you're published there, that means that you kind of know what you're doing when you're looking at studies. Mm -hmm. um, and my first publication was in The Lancet, and that's an impact factor of 50. So um, just to, to kind of get a sense of the types of uh, areas and, and er places that we play in terms of clinical evaluation, that's kind of our level. And uh, yeah. yeah, so we we've generally worked in cancer research um, and I've really enjoyed that because it gives a, a real breadth of understanding. You know, we understand basic science, you know, how um, certain agents and certain things turn on molecular pathways. Uh, we translate that into early preclinical science. We understand those studies all the way through to clinical research, phase three studies and even real world data. So um, it's it's been a lot of fun because we have a very strong you know breadth of understanding in terms of medicine and how it works. Um, but you asked more recently, you know, what we've been into. And so we've been doing a lot more research in the COVID related area. So we kind of did a little bit of a jump from the standard cancer over to COVID or infectious disease, uh, mm -hmm. specifically as it relates to some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that were recommended, you know, in the early part of COVID. Uh, and then more recently into the clinical trial data related to the vaccine. Mm. So we've done a little bit of a shift. Honestly, infectious disease is a, a walk in the park <laughs> compared to cancer. Uh, you know, the studies 
are a lot less complicated and a lot less sophisticated um, mm -hmm. than what we're used to seeing. And so it's not a it's not a stretch at all to start to evaluate that data and weigh it out. So, yeah, that's what we've been into more recently. And and a lot of the concerns or the reason for the shift was mostly because um, what we found is that, um, you know, when you're you're making a recommendation or developing a guideline, what you want to make sure is that you have the evidence, the level of science, not all science is the same, that the quality of the studies is, su is sufficient to support the claims that you're making. So if you were to say something like masks work, um, you know, you would actually have to have very strong evidence to support that claim. And then you'd have to have strong evidence in the manner in which you plan on using it to support that claim. Um, and so, for instance, the early parts of the pandemic, we were noticing that claims were being made that weren't sufficiently supported by robust enough studies and that yeah. they were extrapolating their recommendations beyond the nature in which the studies were being done. Uh, and so that was a little bit concerning and it was happening fairly consistently right across the board. Um, mm -hmm. And so then we kind of started jumping in and wanting to really get in and evaluate those studies to see if it was uh, the data was sufficiently robust to support the claims that were being made. Right. So glad that you guys were doing that, that work, too. Um, and, you know, j just to point out, like this is not like a, a group of, you know, um, let's say social media researchers who are just like looking up Instagram memes or something to research. Uh, these are serious, um, you know, scientists and well-qualified people on your team and people who you've been partnering with to to do this research. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, great. So um, what are some of the principles? Uh, you know, you're not only a medical researcher, but you're also a Christian, a follower of the Lord. Um, what are maybe some Christian approaches to thinking about medicine and this this topic of, you know, healing in general? Because, you know, the Bible has something to say about that. And I, I just wanted to hear from you before we jump into some of the meat of, you know, dissecting some of the evidence around those topics that you mentioned already. Like, how does your faith inform the way that you approach your job as a medical researcher? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think it I think it's multifaceted. Um, but I think the 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 parts that were most compelling for me in the last three years um, were. Uh, to practice the principle of do no harm, which is really to seek the the wellness and well-being of your neighbor. And it's, you know, the command to mm -hmm. love others, right? Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that happens if you uh, recommend a drug that isn't properly tested in terms of safety, isn't sufficiently tested in terms of safety, then you can't by any, in any good conscience, actually say that it's safe if it isn't safe for everybody. Uh, and so great diligence and care in ensuring that there's something that's safe and ensuring that the validity of that statement is true um, mm -hmm. is the very basis for ensuring that what you're recommending and what you're standing for supporting is actually loving your neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I yeah. see is that truth and love go hand in hand in this particular area, mm -hmm. because unless you take the time to ensure that they're telling the truth, then you actually aren't helping when you recommend or participate uh, in, a, in a given endeavor, whether it's being endorsed mm -hmm. or not. Uh, it's not the, the authority by which the the commandment is given, you know, like in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, Caesar can give an edict and he has great authority, mm. but it doesn't mean that it's true or it will be for the well-being of the people. And so I think as Christians, we need to basically make sure that we're very diligent in ensuring that something is true before we participate in it. And I think even more so today as uh, multiple versions of truth em emerge, uh, and often with competing interests. And the interests are not always aligned with the well-being of others. You know, there's financial and ideological interests that, uh, and political interests that can intersect and uh, compete with uh, doing mm -hmm. good and mm -hmm. looking out for the well-being of your neighbors. So I think that that, that one is probably something that needs to be considered by all people. And, you know, it's so funny when I engage with Christians and I start to talk in that way, they're like, well, I don't know. Like, how do I know this study? You know, I mean, if, you know, I trust the experts, what are you talking about? Um, but right. I, I really think that there's a level of discernment that we all have and that common sense goes a long way. Um, you know, like, for instance, just one simple thing, like uh, how can they recommend a, a, a vaccine, for instance, that they don't know that hasn't been studied yet? Right. 
Mm. If you start yeah. recommending a product four to five months before it's actually produced, you need to actually test it thoroughly before you actually know that it can be true. Or if you need to test something for 10 years and it's tested for one year, then you could mm. probably reason through that the testing hasn't been sufficiently conducted, that they haven't conducted sufficient safety data, safety testing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's, you know, that's, just, that's really base level common sense sort of thing. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And what I what I think happens is that um, there's the powers that be basically appeal to authority and it's a low level argument. You know, they appeal to mm -hmm. emotion and they appeal to authority. And so if you ever yeah. feel people, you know, heavily relying on, well, the expert says or the science says or Fauci says or anybody says, <laughs> it doesn't matter anybody. I would highly be suspicious because it, it it's not who it's come who uh, is delivering the message that should be mm. scrutinized is the message itself. Um, yeah. And, you know, and if somebody has to do an appeal to emotion, especially appeal to fear, um, mm. or if there's any type of coercion involved where they're requiring or mandating something and making a basic livelihood uh, conditional on it, then if they have to coerce, then it's probably not good in and of itself. Mm. Like those are yeah. just basic, basic things you can probably engage in in terms of everyday logic. And I, and I really mm. feel that today more than Anytime else, there's a lot of appeal to authority where yep. they're saying, you know, you don't know, you're not the expert. And I really think that we need to push back against that as Christians, because mm. God's given us a spirit, uh, his truth, uh, the spirit of truth, yeah. right? Yeah. Or sorry, the that's Holy so Spirit, um, which is and, his spirit, you know, which is the spirit of truth. Yeah. And uh, that's so in line with like, you know, just New Testament Christianity, right? That you see even the apostles themselves, like it wasn't just the authority that they had in themselves, even though they were inspired. Um, it was the message that they kept on pointing back to, right? Like Paul even encouraged and 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 gave commendations to the Bereans, for example, for examining the scriptures, right? So there there is this this ethos, so to speak, in Christianity of wanting to be a people of the truth because we follow one who is the truth, right? Um, so mm -hmm. th these things matter as Christians, and I think it's it's good. It was one of the encouraging things for me in all of this was to see how many people. Who are pushing back against the mainstream narrative and you know the whole trust in the the expert sort of of rhetoric that was being used uh, were actually a lot of Christians. I don't know if you noticed that, but um, you know maybe speak to that a little bit. Like, did you find that there were a lot of like within the professional medical sort of sphere and the research um, sort of sphere that a lot of the people who were seeing these things and raising issues and maybe having the courage to speak out even at risk of their jobs um, that there was a faith component to that uh, a lot of times. Um, well, let me just put it this way is that, and to my, you know, to my shame, maybe, you know, if you're in the sciences or in the medical field, you don't talk about your faith too much. It's not like you don't have it, but in it, you might operate in a, in alignment with it, but it's not something that's front and center in terms of the way that you talk, uh, and you know, the way that you exchange ideas. And so for that reason, you probably don't know, and you can't identify other uh, Christian scientists very easily. Um, and it, and it, mm. it's interesting because during COVID, um, all of a sudden, you know, I felt very strongly compelled to speak the truth because I felt that people were being deceived uh, and that they were being asked to do something that could be harmful to them. And so out of compassion and love for my neighbor, I wanted to sacrifice myself and my reputation and my even my income in my company because I wanted to make sure that people weren't hurt. So that's that was where it was coming from for me. Um, mm. You know, I know just how much God loves people and how much he seeks their well-being. And as his follower, I needed to do the same thing. Um, but interestingly enough, as I stepped out there and and you know, there were a few of us, I actually started to recognize that the other people who were willing to make that step too. And that we're willing to sacrifice uh, for the well-being of the general public. Um, and some people did have, mm. uh, you know, it cost a lot. We're also people of faith and people who of, oh. of compassion. Um, and, yeah. you know, and in, interestingly enough, we have a whole group of us scientists who actually pray regularly now through, mm. you know, all the various challenges related to COVID. And so, you know, God is so good that he's also given us community you know, in the midst of it. And I didn't have that before. I didn't have a, a Christian community of scientists that I could, you know, study and pray with. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, that it's interesting because for me, it has a little bit of a, you know, I'm 
primarily more of a theologian than I am. I wouldn't even pretend to be a scientist. <laughs> but like, you know, that, that has a lot of um, interesting parallels for me. When you think about like the authenticity of, let's say, like the Gospels and the early Christian testimony, a lot of them, the reason why we have such high confidence with that is that it cost them so much. Like so many Christians lost their lives to give testimony to uh, the fact that Jesus Christ rose. Again, actually that, that word martyr actually comes from the Greek word, which just means to be a witness. And it, it took on that shade of meaning to lose your life for a truthful witness later on because of Christians who were willing to sacrifice much just to bear witness to the truth. And in a way, like you're seeing something of that. I mean, not calling you guys martyrs or anything like that. It's not to mm -hmm. that level. But there's a certain level of credibility that you have to give when people are willing to risk a lot of um, loss for the sake of something they truly believe is true. Now, they could be genuinely wrong, but at least you could say, well, these people are at least genuine because they're willing to risk uh, something for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And, and it, it was interesting that I was reading First John and, uh, you know, looking at a, a number of versions of it and considering uh, the meaning of various words. And I noticed that he he would interchange love and sacrifice, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, love mm. one another, yeah. sacrifice for one another, love one another, sacrifice. I'm like, oh, my gosh, the essence of love is sacrifice. It's giving yourself mm. away for the well-being of somebody else, right? Yeah. Um, and so I counted a privilege to be able to do that and and to to give what I have and even at cost to myself and to my family in order uh, that people will be protected and, and guarded against this and also that they would become aware and more discerning in in what they allow themselves to be guided in. Mm -hmm. So good. All right. So I'm going to shift this conversation a little bit. And this is probably a point at which I'll have to stop it on YouTube. But um, in the past few years, um, you know, it's kind of exposed a lot of things about the pharmaceutical industry to a lot of people who perhaps were in the past a little bit more ignorant towards this, uh, including myself. And, you know, the COVID pandemic um, really brought many issues of transparency, accountability, credibility, you know, corruption, all those sorts of things to the forefront of a lot of um, lay people's minds. Right. And, you know, I'd like for you to comment a little bit on that, uh, that, that major problem within the pharmaceutical industry, because for me, I think I had just kind of blind trust or just, you know, happy ignorance before knowing some of these things. Uh, but maybe you can point out some of the big problems in terms of uh, regulations uh, and maybe the lack of accountability in terms of approval of drugs and vaccines and those sorts of things. You know, what are some of those conflicts of interest at play today in big pharma, in the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, yeah, maybe speak a little bit to that. Yeah, I think there's a, a, a number of things that probably need to be addressed. Um, you know, I started in the pharmaceutical arena probably mm -hmm. about more than let's think oh my goodness like 30 years ago for sure um easily uh in and around that anyways and i did my first seven years in pharmaceutical companies and so i did some time in the medical area there some marketing and some sales as well um and one of the things that i learned right away that was a key fundamental part of the sales training is that you basically want to minimize uh, in the mind of the person that you're speaking to the risk of a drug and maximize the benefits. So it's not like you're lying. You're just kind of putting an emphasis on something. And if somebody raises a concern, then you basically try and dismiss the concern as quickly as possible and then refocus on the benefits of the drug. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that is the, the essence of pharmaceutical sales. And then whenever, um, I became more aware of marketing and when I participated in understood that more, uh, there's a pre-marketing phase in a pharmaceutical when a, a launch. So before you actually launch your drug, before you actually have phase three trial data that would, uh, indicate that there's a benefit and a risk, the company invests a lot of money in uh, advertising and marketing the disease before they market mm. the drug. So with that, the market. It's, a, it's a it's a pre-marketing strategy. So you know, like if they're yeah. getting ready to send to to I don't know, let's just say to sell a drug that's about depression, then all of a sudden you'll have celebrities on the news. They're, they're going to be talking about how depressed they are. You'll know you'll have people saying mm. depression is the worst thing ever. You'll have somebody pull up some stats and, you know, they'll say, did you know that 30 percent of the population is depressed and they've been depressed forever? You know, all of a sudden mm. you'll just get all this news about depression and, and then you'll get, you know, maybe 
you know, an advocacy group and they'll start raising money fundraisers because this is such a big dinner, big problem that we actually need to raise funds in order to to solve this problem. But this advocacy group mm. is all part of the pharmaceutical company. Like they'll be funded by the pharmaceutical wow. company. These spots will be funded by the pharmaceutical company. And it's all about the goal of raising in the mind of the consumer awareness of their need for the drug. Mm. Um, and a lot of people uh, probably don't recognize that this is happening. The most recent uh, occurrence that I found of this is this that they uh, that Pfizer has an RSV vaccine. Uh, and so, you know, this fall, all of a sudden, there's all these doctors on the news talking about RSV and then like pictures mm. of, you know, kids in the eMERGE and and everybody's like, oh, my RSV is terrible and they're, it's young children are dying and all this kind of stuff. And I know for sure the statistics on RSV like very, very, very low mortality rate. Uh, very few kids ever get it. You know, people get it, you know, infants will get it multiple times and recover from it. It's part of building their immune system. And so then I was like, oh, okay. So I'm going to, I went up on clinicaltrials.gov and I looked for the phase three trial results and I'm like, oh, it's, it's being released in a, in a month, right? <laughs> Lo and behold, a month later, oh my goodness, their phase three trial results are positive and, you know, their vaccine is going to cure these children and blah, 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 blah. But anyways, that's a perfect example of the the pre-marketing campaign that happens before the launch of a drug. And so with COVID, for instance, uh, the pre-marketing campaign was actually uh, part, the lockdowns and the masking were all part of that, as well as the incessant, um, you know, media coverage of COVID. Um, you know, whenever they would present numbers, they would always present them in their worst possible light. So for instance, they present cumulative data rather than running totals. Um, they would, especially in the early parts, they would focus on, uh, you know, they would focus on severe disease and fatalities when they wanted to emphasize the gravity of the disease. But then they would very quickly shift and start talking about cases when they wanted to talk about the prevalence or the spread of the disease. And so they would be doing really crafty tricks like that, where uh, in the mind of the undiscerning consumer, all of a sudden you would say, oh my goodness, COVID is deadly and prevalent. Everybody is susceptible to it. Whereas the, really, the truth of it was that only very, very few people, people who were at very high exposure and had a high risk of severe disease were actually, um, you know, dying or even getting severe outcomes from from COVID. But that was part of their marketing technique. And um, the other part was lockdowns uh, and masking are ways of making people so uncomfortable that uh, they become desperate for the particular uh, product that they're about to sell. And you wouldn't be able to do that. That's unusual. I mean, the best that they ever usually do is a media spot. But one of the things that people have to understand about um, well, there's two things that you probably need to understand in terms of context and COVID specifically. One is that vaccines are the most lucrative product that a company can do because uh, it relates back to the the size of the market. And I mean, that's kind of a weird thing to think about, but the size of the market is the, the number of total people that you could ever possibly give your product to. Um, so for instance, if it's late stage cancer, which is an area that I work in a lot, then it all comes down to how many people have late stage cancer. And the answer is often very few have late stage cancer. Um, but then if you think about early stage cancer, then there's more people who have early stage cancer. If you think about uh, something that could prevent cancer, well, then high risk people could do it. But if you're thinking about a vaccine, then anybody who's moving and breathing, you know, any child who's born is a market. So you get 100 percent market like everybody is in the market. Mm. Right. So the vaccine market wow. is huge. But the only thing that would make a vaccine market even better would be if you could convince people that they needed an annual vaccine. So that the seasonal vaccines, for instance, the flu vaccine uh, and would probably be even more lucrative than pediatric vaccines, because with pediatric vaccines, the child's born, they get their vaccine, they'll get the booster, whatever it is, and then they're done. But with uh, respiratory vaccines, uh, what they can do is they can basically convince you that you need it every year. So annually. And then with COVID, uh, whenever they produce that particular vaccine, they produced it so that uh, the part of the vaccine that they were producing would mutate a lot. So what they were hoping would happen, I'm sure, is that you might need it three or four times a year. And so they were hoping wow. that they could wow. deliver. So a lot so of it's like, like just really 
it's business driving a lot of this, just profits and so on. And, well, you know, it, it reminds me of what the Bible talks about, the love of money being the root of, of all kinds of evil, right? First uh, Timothy 6.10. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it seems like yeah, that, that's well, a lot of the incentive there. I don't know. Like, it's hard to ascribe motive, but we can definitely say that there was a big temptation, right? That this is big, big money. This mm -hmm. is not like just average money. <laughs> Yeah. Think about every person so, in the whole um, globe four times a year is a big money. More about uh, some of the concerns around childhood vaccines. My, my, my wife and I, uh, we've been actually reading this book. Uh, I don't know if you know it actually. Turtles All the Way Down, uh, Vaccine Science. Oh, right. Yeah, I've, it's been I've very heard of it. Um, mm -hmm. By a bunch of different uh, experts and vaccinologists and so on. Um, and, you know, one of the things that they bring up is the concerns around um, childhood vaccines, right? And lack of actual empirical data and proper studies to support them. They say, you know, basically that I think pretty much all it seems uh, of the vaccines do comparative studies instead of like, you know, uh, against a control or like, you know, with no uh, vaccination. Um, I wanted to ask, and this is actually a question from my wife, because um, we're reading into this and we're just like, we're thinking about our son and, you know, about making decisions uh, on his behalf for, in, in terms of that. Like, are there any um, properly done studies on childhood vaccines particularly uh, or you can speak to vaccines in general and how those studies are done because it seems like there's a lot of major conflicts of interest and even just problems with the methodology of how these studies are operated that they they tend to be comparing comparing sorry one vaccine to another instead of to a you know a, a control meaning you know a non-vaccinated uh, child uh, can you speak a, a little bit more to that Um, well, you're correct in saying that the only way to prove that something is better than another is to do a randomized controlled trial. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they don't do randomized controlled trials against nothing, you know, or placebo, um, basically means that they can't tell whether it's better than uh, nothing. <laughs> so a vaccine <laughs> yeah. to a vaccine basically means, well, so whenever a pharmaceutical company uh designs a trial where they're comparing something to something again it's a no-lose trial it's a it's a false comparator um because the answer to the trial even if one is better than the other is always vaccine right mm -hmm. so that's <clears throat> that's one of the things that you'll that is very handy and so the original i think there was one phase three trial where it was compared to a placebo uh, and then very early on, they basically declared that the study was positive and therefore said that it was unethical to compare to a placebo again. And that type of standard, and this is something that happens, was set in the vaccine area and then followed. Now, that is particularly excellent for a pharmaceutical company. And the reason why that is really, really good for a pharmaceutical company is because you have to prove safety, which means that you need to test rigorously. And when it passes all the tests, then you should be able to say, make a safety claim. It is safe. It, it, and it, it is always, it is safe after uh, rigorous testing. And that's what a safety claim should be supported by. But if you can basically say something to the effect that it's unethical to conduct a study more than two months, uh, then you can basically say that it's safe without the rigorous testing. And if you don't conduct a phase three trial, you can't prove safety, but now you can declare safety. But you also can't prove harm. And so therefore, nobody who's injured by a vaccine can prove that it was a vaccine that did it because there's an absence of phase three trials. Uh, and so it's very much in the best interest of a pharmaceutical company to end a phase three trial early or to compare it to another vaccine, because then you'll never actually see if there's a safety problem or not. Yeah, I've also um, noticed and if you that, can't, they, that they manipulate language in a way um, where they'll say, well, it's not been proven to cause yada, yada, yada. But what's actually meant is, well, we actually didn't test for, the, for, for such side effects. So therefore, we can't say if it causes such side effects. Um, and it, mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those ways where marketing, it seems, can just word things um, to, to, you know, technically not lie, but they're twisting or skewing what's being communicated. It seems to imply that, oh, this is perfectly safe. But really, what they're saying is, no, we just didn't test for any side effects. And therefore, we can say that, oh, it, mm -hmm. it, you know, there's no study showing that these side effects can be linked. Mm -hmm. So I, I think with vaccines, especially, they lean towards declarations of safety mm. rather than uh, uh, claim safety claims, like claims where you've tested rigorously. 
Uh, and so what you often and I, I think that there's another thing to remember is that in certain highly lucrative areas, what you do is you start to get vaccine, well, co pharmaceutical companies working with the experts in that field to lower the standards. Um, so, for instance, in some areas, it would be, you know, you need two phase three trials showing a clinical endpoint, right? And the clinical endpoint should be severe outcomes and or death, Right. Uh, because that's what we're really concerned with. If we're afraid that this is killing, this infectious disease is killing somebody, then we should have the endpoint of the trial should be severe uh, disease and or death, right? Um, but these pharmaceutical companies basically have convinced regulators and even a lot of investigators that a surrogate endpoint is sufficient and a surrogate endpoint is an, an endpoint that you can measure early on that points to a long term benefit. But surrogate endpoints are these are called correlates of, of prevention need to be actually established. So for instance, and I don't really want to get too complicated, but immunogenicity, which is your, the antibodies that you produce after you receive a vaccine, um, have, uh, are, have been established as a correlate of prevention in some areas. Um, but now more than others, they basically just say, well, if you have antibodies, that means that it works. And so the main endpoint of a lot of these trials are just the generation of antibodies. And we don't actually know whether that means that it actually prevents severe disease and death because it's never been established as a proper correlate of prevention. And if unless it's a validated correlate of prevention, you shouldn't be using it. And, and yet, if you look at the vaccine trials, what you see is that they use it even though it hasn't been established. So you shouldn't be doing that, but then it's become an accepted standard, right? Another accepted standard would be that you only conduct your trials for a couple of months and then you stop them. They'll everybody just accept that that's the standard. Or another accepted standard is that you compare one vaccine to another and you don't actually compare to placebo. So all of these things that should be happening in order to be able to prove safety and to prove efficacy, everybody's accepted now that they don't, they're not needed in the area of vaccines. And that's probably, and I can't say for sure, but that's probably the work of a pharmaceutical company over many, many, many years, maybe decades, is that they slowly work with the investigators and they push to have the standards eroded to the point where um, they're no longer able to really to claim it, but everybody just agrees that, you know, oh, it's unethical to continue. Oh, no, that is an established surrogate. Oh, I think we could use it. All of that kind of stuff. Right. Wow. That's, uh, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> so, yeah. so then are, are there any um, vaccines on the market or that have been around for a while that have like proper uh, studies to back them up and to, to prove their the usefulness um like are, can you think of any that you would say yeah I, there's really solid evidence behind this particular one um so i to just to be completely honest i haven't studied all vaccines extensively i've mm -hmm. uh, researched cancer extensively i know clinical trial design extensively and i've researched the covid vaccines extensively so i i feel very confident in speaking to all of those but i can speak to the fact that you know, almost, you know, 20 years ago, I was asking the same question with my children. Um, and I was sitting in the the um, the lobby of a pharmaceutical company that was a vaccine producer. And I was looking at their, you know, annual report. And one of the the you know, I flipped to the beginning and it's like, yes, we're in the business of saving lives. And, you know, we were so committed to everybody's well-being and then, you know, kept flipping. And all of a sudden I got to probably about you know, a third of the way through and all of a sudden all the pretty pictures disappeared. And then there was just page after page of small print. And so I was flipping through those pages of small print and going, what is all this? And I'm like looking at it. And then I realized that each and every one of those little squares in the back of this small print were each um, lawsuits that were were launched against this particular pharmaceutical mm -hmm. company. Uh, and, and the ma vast majority of them are related to vaccine injury. Uh, and so I was shocked. I was like, whoa, why are there so many legal suits around vaccines in the back of this drug, this book? And so then I basically, um, you know, stopped and thought I better take some time and research. And so one of the things that I know about pharmaceutical companies is that they have drug information departments and you can actually call the drug information department and say, you know, send me clinical trial data on X and ask for the, the particular products. And so I called all of the key pharmaceutical companies related to the pediatric vaccines get um agents and I asked them to send me their 
their phase three trials where they compared uh, you know, the drug to the standard of care and followed it for 10 years with a clinical endpoint. That would be what would be required to ensure safety. And each and every one of them came back to me and said, sorry, we don't have that data. Um, and so wow. then I met with my pediatrician and I said, you know, this is the exercise that I just did based on what I saw in this particular prospectus. Um, you know, and you're recommending that I give these vaccines to my kids. So give me the phase three trial that you're looking at that shows that it stops disease and that it's safe up to 10 years, which is what I want, at least for my child. And, and he basically so goes, well, you know that those trials don't exist. And I said, well, how come you're recommending it to me if you're if you're mentioning that? And then he basically said that um, his the pediatric society recommends the vaccines and therefore he's obliged in order to maintain his license to recommend them to parents, even though there is no safety wow. data. Yeah. And that's an important point, too, like because a lot of people trust their doctors as, you know, I think generally speaking, they should. Like, I think doctors do want to help people out and are, are often getting into their medical field because of that desire to help people. Um, so I don't want to cast shade on doctors in general. Um, but there is something um, to it in the sense that, like, I, I know, uh, for example, some family practices, I'm not sure if how like broad this is, but will receive um, pretty generous bonuses from pharmaceuticals. <coughs> Um, if they can show that, hey, uh, you know, all of the kids within our practice have stuck to the vaccine sh schedule. And there's certain incentives that that um, play into the background and into the decision making of doctors. And even um, when you look at their training and so on, a lot of the um, training that they go through is sponsored by and like supported by the pharmaceutical uh, industry. So you have this big conflict of interest where the, the ones who are recommending these drugs are you know, either directly or indirectly being funded by the companies that make massive profits from them recommending the drugs to their, their patients. Um, is that something that you've seen uh, and maybe flesh that out a bit more? Like perhaps I'm, I'm misunderstanding it, but that's on the surface to a layperson. That seems kind of the way things are right now. Um, well, I think that drug companies have always been trying to encourage doctors to prescribe in a certain way. And there's, uh, and I think, most doctors are aware of that. Some are more susceptible to it. Some aren't susceptible to it. But when it comes to vaccines, um, one of the things that, you know, they've done again, and this is because it's such big business <laughs> and again, because of the market size and the market potential, and especially so when it comes to respiratory vaccines, because you can you can do repeat injections. Um, what they do is they capture the guideline groups. So what they'll do is if they can get the pediatric association to say that doctors are required to recommend a vaccine, right? Uh, and that they can link it to the insurance that the doctor has and basically say, you know, good medical practice is that you give vaccines. And so if you don't give vaccines, then not only could you be under disciplinary review, but you could have your insurance revoked, right? Uh, then that's a lot more cost effective that than going around and trying to bribe doctors or give them incentives on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. right? right. So yeah. th that that the the type of influence that we're having is at more and more so at a guideline level. So, for instance, in Canada, the guideline body for immunization is called NASI. So Nash the oh my gosh. I can't even remember what NASI is, stands for, but Immunization Council. But they basically are the group of doctors that in, that recommend uh, vaccines for Canada. And I write guidelines all the time. And one of the key things of a, the key elements of a good guideline is that you you take a question, let's just say late stage liver cancer, which is a guideline that we just did recently. And the first thing that you have to do is is talk about your question. So you define your population, late stage cancer. And then you basically say, what specialists would I need to represent all spectrums of treatment for late stage cancer? And then you would go and get a panel of experts and they would make sure to represent all treatment options. And then those experts would then sit in a room and review the data and they would debate to the point where they've debated across specialties to the point where they would get to a place and be able to recommend for this group of people, we recommend this particular approach. For this group of people, we recommend this particular approach. And so this multidisciplinary view is really important in getting 
a uh, robust spectrum of options uh, on the other side. Now, one of the things that they've done is that NACI is a group that's immunization specific, right? So the only thing that they do is look at immunization. They never look at immunization with respect to, you know, natural health and what would happen if you're, uh, you know, you know, helping somebody have a robust immunity versus immunization. They don't do that because they only specialize in immunization. Uh, they don't look at repurposed medications and compare it to immunization. There's no cross uh, cross specialty dialogue happening when they're making those recommendations. Basically, the people at NASA just look at it and say, you know, does this trial meet our very low standards because the standards have been eroded? And if the answer is yes, they say, thumbs up, let's go, right? Mm. So that it's never it's never a recommendation with respect to other things like it should be. It's always an immunization specific recommendation. And so the problem, there's a couple problems with that. One is that if you ask the shoemaker, like if you ask, like if I ask a medical oncologist, you know, what should we give this patient who has cancer? He's always going to say chemotherapy because that's his answer, because right. that's all he yeah. knows, right? The yeah. same thing with the surgeon is always going to say surgery. So with an somebody on NASA, they're always going to recommend a vaccine because they don't know anything else. And so it would be, you know, again, coming back to common sense, it's it's not common sense to think that they could recommend vitamin D or repurposed drugs or anything else because all they know is vaccines. And so all that they know is once it meets this very low standard that we've set and that has been eroded over the years, then I'm going to be required to say, give it an endorsement. And so then if you can capture those people. And I'm going to talk about how you capture people, not in the sense of giving them rewards for doing it, but you capture them by giving them lucrative, lucrative research contracts, right? So if I wanted to capture a high-level doctor who's in charge of writing guidelines, what I'll do is I'll give him the role of a principal investigator in a trial, which will give him $50,000 in research grants, right? And then I get to invite him to all of my research conferences where he gets to design a trial and meet other people who are doing this. And then all of a sudden he starts using the drug within the context of a clinical trial to the extent that he becomes very, very familiar with it himself. And then he'll just naturally recommend what he knows. So right. the, that is a, a way more effective way of capturing and influencing guidelines than, you know, what you were referring to. And I'm not saying that those ploys don't happen, but they're not as powerful or as dangerous as these other ones where you get like single specialty groups recommending something or where you have the same people who are conducting the research trials for pharmaceutical companies making the recommendations on the use of those pharmaceuticals actually in, in actual clinical practice. So those yeah, types of that's, things that's are more so even more dangerous. Them, like for the upstream, right? Because like yeah. if, if you get those types of people um, who are then um, either disseminating information to the, the uh, family practitioners, let's say, or whoever, or even, let's say, prof professors who are in universities who are training the doctors <laughs> who will then become those practitioners, um, you're kind of like, you know, going to get way more bang for your buck, so to speak, uh, from a pharmaceutical perspective, uh, if you capture like, those people upstream, um, mm -hmm. who then will have all those ripple down effects to everybody else that they influence. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, but I think that, you know, in the COVID moment, we have to realize that there's something even further upstream, <laughs> yeah. which is, which is, is, I think, I think probably what COVID taught me is that there are global forces that we need to consider that are influencing yeah. our, our, the sovereignty of our healthcare system. Um, and I'll just elaborate on that by example yeah, is about... Oh, probably about 10 to 15 years ago, I think it was the first time that I happened and it happened is that, you know, we'll, our firm will be hired by companies to, to do literature reviews or to analyze clinical data or to make recommendations or to develop, you know, um, an analysis for them. And so we work uh, quite extensively with pharmaceutical companies. So I'm not against them. Uh, and, you know, we've been hired by them. And we're well respected in our field uh, for the work that we do. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting that was happening is I would work with somebody and then, you know, about a, a year later, I'd go to touch base with them. You know, six months later, I'd come to touch base and I'd say, hey, uh, you know, how how's it going? Or I'd go to reach out and all of a sudden they're like, oh, sorry, I'm no longer at blah, blah, blah. I've gone to global. 
right? Hmm. And then I'd be like, global? Okay, that's interesting. I wonder what that is, right? Anyway, so it happened so consistently that every time I met somebody who was particularly talented or, or excelled in their particular field, they'd turn around and they'd say, oh, you know, no, I'm not there anymore. I've gone to global. And so one of the things that I came to realize after some chatting is that all the pharmaceutical companies basically pull their bo- their brightest their best and their brightest, and they bring them up into a, a global corporation. It's almost like a global entity. And they start to make all of the policy decisions and marketing decisions and marketing plans. And then those that are then implemented across the globe, right? So you've gone from having companies where they develop strategies, marketing and sales strategies for an individual country. And now these, these, um, people go and they're they're actually implementing things at a global level. And then they just, mm. they bake them at the global level and then they implement them locally. Um, and so these corporations are very, very bright and, and all the resources go up now. So they have incredible budgets and they also pull the intel from different country, countries and then use that to develop and tweak strategies. And what that does is it puts them in a position whereby, you know, I remember my early days, we'd actually have people who specialized in negotiating contract pricing, right? So they'd go to one hospital and they'd say, okay, you use this much drug, so I'm going to give you a preferred price. And then they'd go to another one and they'd go, well, you use this much drug, so I'm going to give you less price. You know, like it was basic on, on market volume and you know, sometimes they'd pit a hospital against another hospital just to kind of get a better price and that kind of stuff. But what a lot of us don't recognize is that global corporations now can do that with countries. They can basically give or deny access to a given drug or give preferential pricing or access based on whether the country is compliant or helpful or supportive to their particular position. Wow. So that type of ability to negotiate and that supranational, supranational, <laughs> not natural, national entity is very, yeah. very powerful. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that um, the standing government in 2015 basically launched what they called um, uh, strategic, um, the biomedical sciences, strategic economic tables. And these are kind of pseudo think tanks that are led by pharmaceutical industry the pharmaceutical industry, um, and they're basically designed to tell the government how to grow the biomedical economy in Canada. Uh, and lo and behold, after a couple of years of consultation with these companies that are industry-led, right? So this is industry telling our government what it should do. One of their first mm-hmm. recommendations was that they needed to lower our regulatory, food and drug regulatory standards. So we needed to lower the bar of our regulation in order to, and it says this on the government website, to attract international investment. So what Mm. that's code for is they want pharmaceutical companies to come and play in Canada. They need to now change their policy in order to attract either the money or the investment. And so one of the things that they did in the Mm. eve of 2019 is they actually passed a law that created a regulatory backdoor to our food and drug regulations, and it's called the Advanced Therapeutics Products Pathway. And what that does is it basically lowers the bar again. And, you know, we were talking about tests. So usually before to get access to Canadian markets for a drug, you would need to prove that something is safe, effective, and that the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, Now they can go through this backdoor, and all that they have to do is show that there's enough sufficiently supporting evidence to support the conclusion that the benefits outweigh the risks. And what's notably missing from that statement or that test is proven safety. So basically, they're creating a venue by which drugs can be let onto the market without proving safety. And the first drug that was let through the back door was, by interim order, our COVID-19 vaccines. And so they were approved and put on the market and declared safe without ever going through the the rigorous testing that's required to prove safety. And one of the biggest and most problematic elements of that is that those aren't actually vaccines. What they are is gene therapy. So a gene Mm -hmm. therapy is something that modifies your 
you know, in, in very, very simply, it, it, it basically teaches your body to produce a protein or some sort of biological substance, genetic substance that's not natural to your body. So the spike protein that it's producing that your body is being taught to produce is foreign. And because it's a foreign protein, your body will actually attack that protein in any tissue that it's attached to as foreign, which basically makes it very, very rife for autoimmune responses. Uh, and so, you know, from a um, what we call a mode of action, when you look at the mechanism of action, it's 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 a it's a problem waiting to happen <laughs> and but the reason why pharmaceutical companies wanted these products approved so much and went to such great lengths to coordinate a, a global program is because they basically are highly adaptable meaning that it's very easy to change them and one of the things that they did in the food and drug regulations in 2019 and that, that the modifications that they're doing right now is they basically made it so that once the mrna platform has been approved you can put anything in there so you can change that mrna now and change the protein that it's expressing or the the type of protein that it's expressing without ever having to go and get your drug approved again so you can be having you can you can change it to who knows what like for instance, this this vaccine, this I guess what they're calling is you know the booster <laughs> for the fall for the COVID booster. Who knows what's in it, and it won't go under any testing, zero safety testing. So um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies basically were influencing now the government to now erode the safety standards that have been placed have been historically in place by law to protect Canadians and now they've lowered that bar too and now mm -hmm. um so like okay but for me as a, a lay person I'm sure a lot of the listeners now are like probably having a what the heck kind of moment <laughs> um you know uh, and this this seems like a real significant problem here um is there any hope for for like our medical industry and the pharmaceuticals and the things that we you know would have trusted um i think traditionally speaking um you know it, it seems like there's so such a level of multi-leveled actually um corruptions going on in pharma and how it relates to the medical field and, and research and governments and all these things there's so many things interconnected like um do you see any way forward that would be better like do you see any hope for change for the better in terms of these things because i mean for for me as a lay person listening i'm like right now to be honest i'm just kind of like i'm checking out of here <laughs> like this is like i'm done with with uh you, you know um these sorts of things because I, as a lay person i don't know what i can trust like you know how mm -hmm. how does a lay person even navigate this how do we um you know okay let me break that up into two questions one is there any hope that you see okay for positive change and reform in these really significant and worrying issues. And secondly, for a layperson, like how do you even navigate this? Because there's so many compelling voices and experts that are trying to vie for your attention. It, it, it's very, it's a very challenging environment, but one of the things that I would think is, you know, I think that getting to the root of the problem is always the most important thing. Um, and so one of the things that I'm often stressing is that we need to reconsider how we're operating and uh, where the enemy really is. You know, a lot of people are thinking about it in the traditional sense of, oh, I think my doctor got paid, you know, taken out to dinner. <laughs> that must be why, you know, I, I'm being given this drug or that's reason for concern. But what's what's really reason for concern is that there are global companies that are almost extorting countries. Um, and there's also very powerful non-governmental organizations um, that are acting as a as a almost as a frontman for the pharmaceutical companies. So for instance, the Gates Foundation is an excellent example where the Gates Foundation will give, you know, it's like philanthrocapitalism. They'll they'll basically you know, get shares and or stakes in, you know, a given vaccine program. Uh, and then they'll turn around and take money and then they'll donate it to, you know, entities like the World Health Organization, which they control or Gavi. Uh, and then they'll set policy that's very pro-vaccine. 
uh, and that you know makes com- countries think that they need to collaborate with the World Health Organization to better coordinate pandemic preparedness and all this business. But really what it is, is it's basically getting these non-governmental organizations to work as, as you know, operatives in setting international guidelines that favor vaccines. And so I think that once we start to understand what's happening, uh, that global pharmaceutical is, companies exist, that they're influencing, you know, entities like the World Health Organization, that they're that they they've been compromised, you know, um, and that that our government uh, is changing our food and drug regulations in in a way that favors these corporations rather than favors Canadians. You know, we can always elect. You know, we could use our electoral vote. Um, that you know, when we think about public health, public health and and immunization um, specific guideline entities shouldn't be trusted because they're not looking at the whole picture. Um, that you need a, a multitude of voices, you know, a broad number of voices in order to be able to establish whether something is right or not. And if you see censorship happening where only one group is allowed to talk, then that's, again, you know, just a reason for concern because you could say, OK, there's probably some money involved there. Right. If if something is true, then it should be true, even if it's debated. Right. <laughs> Truth shouldn't yeah. shouldn't uh, fall apart if it's it's debated. Debate and scientific and rigorous study should actually prove truth rather than dissolve mm-hmm. truth, right? So yeah, you know that absolutely. that's probably a thing. But you know, is there hope in all of this? Well, I do think that there is hope because you know once we realize that things are compromised and corrected and corrupted and at a high level, then we can basically start to raise our voices, to raise awareness, and to to put regulations and standards in place that that shut this down, right? Like if everybody just basically said, you know what, we're not trusting this anymore until we see, you know, full transparency, until we see a multitude of voices, until you get rid of censorship, um, you know, all of these things, then, um, you know, they wouldn't be able to continue. But, you know, just on another level that, I, you know, we're going to just jump back into the theological just for a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the pre-marketing campaigns, um, which is which is basically where they need to uh, convince you that you have a problem that they can solve. Right. So that kind of plays into a little bit of a victim mentality where we basically give up the uh the responsibility that we have to steward our bodies well uh, to, to steward them wisely. And we release that to the authority or to the pill or to the product that is being given to us. Right. Uh, and so I think, you know, as a society, we we <coughs> step very easily into the victim mentality where we just want a pill to solve our problems rather than bringing them to God and rather than taking part personal responsibility to think through things and to to take good care of ourselves, you know, through, you know, good eating and and uh, appropriate um, sleep and and stress levels and all of those things. Right. Things just common sense, things that we know that we want we should be doing. Uh, and because of that, that creates a market that then is then filled by these pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, we play a part in in creating the market that then allows them to profit from us. And so I think, you know, one thing that we can consider that gives a lot of hope is to take personal responsibility for our own particular health, to do what we should be doing in terms of maintaining that health, um, to take the time to make discerning decisions where we we don't just trust the authorities um, and that we we use the spirit of discernment and truth that God's given us and through prayer and study, uh, we discern the truth for ourselves and in our families and our communities. And I think it's because we abdicated that role of discerners and active participants that maybe the pharmaceutical companies were able to step into the gap. Yeah, so that's so good, uh, Deanna. Thank you for for that and some good um, food for thought for a, a lot of us. Um, you know, I want to ask just before we close off this episode, what's been uh, the most difficult thing for you as a professional and as a Christian in navigating uh, these challenges over the past few years, you know, you've been involved very heavily in this whole COVID debacle and, you know, with advocating just for greater transparency and bringing out a lot of these things to the, to, to the surface. And I think, you know, perhaps you've obviously encountered a lot of opposition 
Um, you know, maybe there were things that surprised you about people's responses to the work that you were trying to genuinely do. Um, what was one of the most difficult things for you as a professional and as a Christian to navigate? Well, one of the difficult things is I really like people to like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and I and I want them to think well of me. And so, um, yeah. you know, one of the the things, you know, that that pharmaceutical companies can do uh, to hide safety uh, in their marketing and, and PR campaigns is to create a taboo word, a taboo area. So like the anti-vaxxer mm. is a yeah. perfect pejorative term that can be used <laughs> to basically shut down debate and um, discussion. Um, and so anytime I ever hear that term used, um, and it was used a lot with me, right? Um, mm. Then what that usually does is it points to something that the pharmaceutical company is is trying to hide, which is, you know, in this case, safety data, right? They haven't done their safety testing, and they actually don't have sufficient data to support safety claims in the normal sense of the word. Uh, and so having people um, discredit me, you know, I think I was in a uh, in a legal trial, and the lawyer spent the better part of a day, you know, talking about everything that was wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> why my education was insufficient and why I didn't really publish 50 trials. And I, you know, even if I did publish them in impact factor journals of 50, that I probably didn't know what I was talking about. And just, you know, there's a lot of ad hominem abusive, uh, mm. you know, tactics that are taken. And so I think that's really hard. Um, and so just to continue to hold on to the position of love and forgiveness in the light of that, and to really understand that a lot of people hold that position, not because, um, because they, they, they don't actually understand, uh, how things are being manipulated and that they've been lied to and that it's not really personal. So I think that to, to hold a position and a posture of compassion and forgiveness in the face of misunderstanding, I think is a huge one. Um, and the second part is that I, I get afraid a lot. Um, you know, I'm afraid because, you know, I know the size and the magnitude of the the powers that are at play. And, you know, if they're willing to invoke lockdowns, which I know that killed hundreds of people, then they're really heartless, uh, kind of ruthless mm. people uh, that are, are, are very powerful and have a low regard for life. And so at times standing up and continuing to speak and to defend truth and to uh, hold a posture of love, even if it means mm. that I'll become the focus of those people, uh, makes me afraid, right? I get afraid. And so mm. I just really need to rest in God's sovereign care and to trust that um, that obedience and and love is always the better way and that, you know, those people will not prosper in the end that uh, that they'll fall on their yeah. own sword and so that i just need to continue to stand and to continue to be firm and to continue to pursue the things that god has for me and the good work that he has for me uh to to further truth and love regardless so yeah those would be the two greatest challenges for me so good so good and you've i think been exemplary in that um and i love to hear that sort of a heart behind it uh, anyways, let, let's wrap up the episode there. Um, Deanna, can you maybe tell people where they can find out a little bit more about the work that you're doing, perhaps point them to a helpful resource that can help them get more educated? Uh, I happen to know, uh, you know, a particular organization called the CCCA, you know, that uh, maybe you might yeah. want to point people towards. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've been working extensively with the CCCA for the last three years and a lot of the work that our firm has done in collaboration with the scientists there. There's, you know, about 600 or so of them that are active. By the way, CCCA stands for? Canadian COVID Care Alliance. Thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah, so I'll give, you, I'll give you a log on. But one of the things that I'm really proud of um, is this pregnancy campaign that we've done recently. Um, and that, uh, that's posted there. And I would really ask that people go and look at that. But, uh, you know, I think that the, the issues of vaccines and especially particularly high risk vaccines, like the COVID-19 vaccine being given to women who are pregnant and, in in babies that are developing, uh, the impact of that type of inflammation can be very devastating. Uh, and the studies, the, the safety studies have not been done. And there are many indicators of harm at this point. So, um, you know, just looking into those resources and sharing them with anybody that you think uh, is looking through, um, you know, is looking to consider whether that's a good choice for them at this time. 
you know, so breastfeeding and pregnancy, um, I would really highly encourage and ask for people to to help send out that information. Even if people might not think that you're, they might have bad words for you or <laughs> if it's scary, uh, you know, just yeah. to stand in love and to share those resources so that people people can make informed choices. I love that. That that needs to be the heart that we do all of this in because there has been a lot of like I think just anger and some some of it's you know justifiable I think, but um, we have to be careful, especially as Christians, that we're acting out of um, a, an attitude and a spirit of Christian love and compassion for our neighbors and our fellow people. And one of the most loving things we can do is share truth. I mean, that's the that's the whole foundation of the gospel and why we evangelize, right? Uh, now this is not the gospel, but it is another truth that is very important um so so thankful for the work that you're doing uh and thankful for you guys who are listening hopefully you found something uh, edifying uh, or thought-provoking in this episode until next time Soli Deo Glory. thanks for listening to the theotivity podcast if you found this content helpful or edifying please leave a review on apple google spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts also follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help theotivity reach others as well Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.